a short message for grown-ups. I would like to apologize to those listeners who recently tried subscribing to our premium feed by following the link in our show notes, but received an error message. This was a mistake on our part. If you are interested in receiving more stories, sleep sounds, guided meditations, and more, please visit sleeptightpremium.com to begin your free trial. And the link in the show notes does now work. Thank you. Hello, friends, and welcome to Sleep Tight Relax. Sounds, music, and stories for calming busy minds. I am Cheryl, and I read and edit all the stories. Production and sound design is by my husband, Clark. We hope that our simple mix of relaxation techniques, sounds, and stories provide a soft landing from you and your family's day. Before we continue with our story, let's first make sure you are cozy and comfortable. Turn off the lights, silence notifications, Find your comfortable place, your place to relax, or your favorite position in bed. Position your pillows, a teddy, or your other little comforts to make sure that everything feels as it should. Now that you are comfortable, Take a slow, deep breath in through your nose and exhale through your mouth. Let's do that again. In through your nose and out through your mouth. Take in a few more deep breaths. Feel your belly rise and fall with the natural rhythm of each breath. Breathe in deeply, filling your body with air and relaxation. Breathe out slowly, expelling any tension. When you are ready, allow your eyes to gently close. In this episode, I am going to share the Campfire Girls of Roselawn, Part 8. In this episode, the girls go to a place they have been told about in the mysterious message, but cannot find any radio aerials. They do find out who owns the farm that they were looking at, and that sends them home in a rush to speak to Mr. Norwood about his case. 
as you listen to this episode's sleep story, continue to focus on gentle, deep breaths. I hope you have a deep and restful sleep. Jessie's parents being away, Amy ran home and announced her desire to keep her friend company and was back again before 10 o'clock. There was not much to be heard over the airways after that hour. They had missed Madame Elva and the orchestra music broadcasted from Stratford Town. Nothing to do but to go to bed, Amy declared. The sooner we are asleep, the sooner we get up and go looking for the mysterious broadcasting station. Do you believe that cry for help was from Little Hen's cousin? I have a feeling that it was, Jessie admitted. Maybe we ought to take the spotted snake with us, chuckled her friend. What do you say? I think not. We might only raise hopes in the child's mind that will not be fulfilled. I think she loves her cousin Bertha very much. And of course, we do not know that it is that girl whose cry for help we heard. We don't really know anything about it. Maybe it is all a joke or a mistake. Do you think that girl sounded as though she were joking? Was Jessie's reply. Anyway, we will look into it alone first if Chapman can find the stock farm with the red barn and the two fallen trees and a silo near it, put in Amy, smiling. Goodness me, Jess. I am afraid the boys would say we had another crazy notion. I like that, cried Jessie. What is there crazy about trying to help someone who certainly must be in trouble? Besides... She added very sensibly, Daddy Norwood would be very thankful to us if we could manage to find that Bertha Blair. He needs her to witness for his clients, and Mumsy said the hearing before the surrogate cannot be postponed again. The matter must soon be decided, and without Bertha Blair's testimony, Daddy's client may lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. We'll be off to the rescue in the morning, then, said Amy, cuddling down into one of her friend's twin beds. Good night, sweet dreams. The next morning, Chapman brought around the car as early as half past eight, when the girls were just finishing breakfast. Don't eat any more, Amy, begged Jessie. Do get up for once from the table, feeling that you could eat more. The doctors say that is the proper way. Ugh, what do doctors know about eating? Scoffed Amy. Their job is to tend to you when you can't eat. Why? I feel lots better morally with a full stomach than when I am hungry. They climbed into the car and Chapman drove out the boulevard and turned into the Parkville Road. 
It was a lovely morning, not too hot, and with only a wind made by their passage, so that the dust only drifted behind the car. They passed the home of Mr. and Mrs. Brandon's daughter and saw the aerial strung between the house and the flagpole on the garage. Keep your eyes open for aerials anywhere, Amy, said Jesse. Of course, wherever that broadcasting station is, the aerials must be observable. They'll be longer and more important than the antenna for the usual receiving set, won't they? Eagerly asked Amy. Of course. Then Jesse leaned forward to speak to Chapman, for they were in the open car. When you approach the stock farm you spoke of, please drive slowly. We want to look over all the surroundings. Very well, Miss Jessie, the chauffeur said. Passing through Parkville, they struck a road called a turnpike. It was an old highway sweeping between great farms, and the country was rolling, partly wooded, and not so far off the railroad line that the latter did not touch the racetrack Chapman had spoken of. The car skirted the high fence of the Haramay enclosure, and then they ran past a long string of barns in which the racing horses were housed and trained for a part of the year. There was no meat here at this time, and consequently, few horses were in evidence. I like to see horses race, remarked Amy, and they are such lovely, intelligent-looking creatures. But so many people who have anything to do with horses and racing are such hard-faced people and so, so impossible. Think of the looks of that Martha Poole. She's the limit, Jessie. Neither she nor Mrs. Bothwell is nice, I admit. But don't blame it on the poor horses, Jessie observed, smiling. I am sure it is not their fault. Mrs. Poole would be objectionable if she were interested in cows or, or Pekingese pups. Chapman turned up a hilly road and they came out on a ridge overlooking the fenced-in track. The chauffeur shifted his position so as to glance behind him at the girls, the car running slowly. Now look out, Miss Jessie, he advised. We are coming to the old Gandy stock farm. That's the roof of the house just ahead. Yonder is the tower they built to house the electric lighting plant, like what your father used to have. See it? Yes, yes, exclaimed Jessie, but, but, I don't see any aerials. No, I don't. And the red barn? There it is, cried Amy, grabbing her friend's arm, with the silo at the end. The car turned a corner in the road, and the entrance gate to the estate came into view. Up the well-kept lane, Beyond the rambling house of weathered shingles stood a long, low barn and a silo, both of a dull red color. 
and on either side of the entrance gate were two broken willow trees, their tall tops partly removed, but most of the trunks still lying on the ground where they had fallen. Huh, said the chauffeur. Those trees broke down since I was last here. Do drive slower, Chapman, Jessie cried. But she drew Amy down when the girl stood up to stare at the barn and the tower. There may be somebody on watch, Jessie hissed. They will suspect us. And if it is either of those women, they will recognize you. Cat's foot, said Amy. I don't see any signs of occupancy about the house, nor is there anyone working around the place. It looks abandoned. We don't know if the poor girl is here. Where? snapped Amy. Perhaps in the house. Perhaps in the barn, scoffed her friend. Anyway, every window of that tower, both the lower and the upper stories, is shuttered on the outside. Maybe that is where Bertha is, if it is Bertha. But where is the radio? There is nothing but a telephone wire in sight. There is no wireless plant here. Dear me, Amy, don't you suppose we have come to the right place? The car was now getting away from the Gandhi premises. Jessie had to confess that there was no suspicious-looking wiring anywhere about the house or outbuildings. Does not seem as though that could be the place after all. What do you think, Chapman? She added, leaning forward again. Don't you think that place looked deserted? It often does between racing seasons, Miss Jessie, the man said. Whoever owns it now does not occupy it all the year. Suddenly, Jessie sat up very straight and her face flamed again with excitement. She cried out, Chapman, isn't there a village near and a real estate office? Haramay is right over the hills, Miss Jessie, said the chauffeur. Drive there at once, please, said the girl, and stop at the office of the first real estate agent whose sign you see. For goodness sakes, Jess, drawled Amy, her eyes twinkling. You don't mean to buy the Gandy farm, do you? Chapman drove the automobile down into Haramay only 10 minutes later. It was a pretty but rather sleepy place, just a string of white-painted, green-blinded houses and two or three stores along both sides of an oiled highway. It was a long 10-minute jitney ride from the railway station. Perkins Real Estate faced the travelers from a signboard as they drove into the village. Chapman stopped before the office door, and the eager Jesse hopped out. I'm coming too, I'm coming too, squealed Amy, running across the walk after her. Do be quiet, begged her friend, and for once, let me do the talking. Oui, oui, mademoiselle, as I haven't the least idea what the topic of a conversation will be. I can easily promise that, said Amy. 
A high-collared man with eyeglasses and an ingratiating smile arose from behind a flat-topped desk, facing the door, and rubbed his hands as he addressed the two girls. "'What can I do for you, young ladies?' "'Why, why, oh, I wanted to ask you,' Jesse stammered. "'Do you know who owns the farm over there by the track, the Gandy place?' "'The old Gandy stock farm, miss?' asked the real estate man with a distinct lowering of tone. It is not in the market. The Gandy place never has been in the market. I just wish to know who owns it, repeated Jesse while Amy stared. The Gandys still own it. At least old man Gandy's daughter is in possession, I believe. Horse people, all of them. This woman, please tell me her name. Poole, Martha Poole is her name. <gasps> cried Amy, seeing now what Jessie wanted. But Jessie shook her head at her friend warningly and asked the man, Do you know if Mrs. Poole is at the place now? Couldn't say. She comes and goes. She is always there when the racing is going on. It is supposed that some things that go on there at the Gandy place are not entirely regular said the real estate man stiffly. If you are a friend of Mrs. Poole, I am Jesse Norwood. My father, Mr. Robert Norwood, is a lawyer, and we live in the Rose Lawn section of New Melford. Oh, ah, indeed, murmured the real estate man. Then I guess it is safe to tell you that the people around here do not approve of Mrs. Poole and what goes on at the Gandy place during the racing season. It is whispered that people there are interested in pool rooms in the city, you know, where betting on the races is conducted. I do not know anything about that, replied Jessie in some excitement, but I thank you for telling me about Martha Poole. She seized Amy by the arm and hurried back to the automobile. What do you think of that? gasped Amy, quite as much amazed as was her friend. Oh, I do wish Daddy was coming home today, but he isn't, not until dinner time anyway. I do believe, Amy Drew, that poor Bertha is hidden away somewhere at that farm. But, but how could she get at any sending station to tell her troubles to, to the air? And Amy suddenly giggled. Don't laugh. It is a very serious matter. I feel sure those women are hiding her away so that they can cheat Daddy's client out of a lot of money. Again, I ask, repeated Amy more earnestly, how could that girl, whoever she is, get to a sending station? We did not see the first sign of an aerial anywhere near the house and barn or above the tower either. I don't know what it means. It is a mystery, confessed Jessie. But I just feel that what we heard over the radio had to do with that missing girl, that it was Bertha Blair calling for help, and that in some way she is connected with that red barn and the silo and the two fallen trees. We traced the place from her description. Well, we did. And unless it is all a big hoax, Somewhere near that place, 
Bertha is held. If that Martha Poole is in with some crooked people who break the state gambling law by radio, sending news of the races to city gambling rooms, she would commit other things against the law. Oh, cried Amy, both she and that Mrs. Bothwell looked like hard characters, but there were no aerials in sight. Jessie thought for a moment, then she flashed at her friend. Well, that might be too. Some people string their aerials indoors. I don't know if that can be done at a sending station, but it may be. They are inventing new things about radio all the time. You know that. I know it, agreed Amy. And if that broadcasting station up there at the Gandy Farm is used for the sending of private racing information, in all probability, the people who set it up would want to keep it secret. Hmm. I see, so they would. It is not registered. You can make up your mind. And as it is only used much when the racing season is on at the Haramay track, the government has probably given it little attention. Could they find it, do you think, Jessie? Asked her friend. I have read that the government has wonderful means of locating any squeak box, as they call it, that is not registered and which litters up the airways with either unimportant or absolutely awful communications. These methods of tracing unregistered sending stations were discovered during the war and were proved thoroughly before the government allowed any small stations to be established since. Do you suppose the police knew that that woman was sending racing news to gambling rooms from up there at her farm? We don't know that she is. Mr. Perkins was only repeating gossip, and we did not see aerials up there. But you say that maybe they could have rigging for the station without any aerials in the open. It might be. I am all confused. There certainly is a mystery about it, and Daddy Norwood ought to know at once. Oh, Chapman, that was thunder. We must hurry home. Yes, Miss Jessie, said the chauffeur, looking up at the clouds that have been gathering. I think I can get you home before it rains. He increased the speed of the car. They had circled around by another way than the Parkville Road, and they came through the edge of New Melford. When the automobile shot into Bonwit Boulevard and headed towards Roselawn, the first flash of lightning made the girls jump. Chapman stepped on the accelerator, and the car shot up the oiled way. The thunder seemed to explode right overhead. Before the first peel rolled away, there was another sharp flash. Although the rain still held off, the tempest was near. Oh, Jessie gasped, covering her eyes. There's the church, said Amy. We'll soon be home now. Even as she spoke, another crackling stroke burst overhead. The green glare of it almost blinded them. The thunder shook the air. Jessie screamed, See, see, look at the parsonage! She cried in Amy's ear. 
Why, the boys must have already strung their wires and got the radio set established, said Amy. Look at the window, that attic window, Jessie exclaimed. Don't you see what I see, Amy Drew? It's smoke, said the other girl, amazed. The house is a fire in the attic. That lightning must have struck there. It must have been led in by the wires just as Mumsy feared. Then the boys never closed their switch, cried Amy. Oh, I wonder if Dr. Stanley or Nell knows that the house is on fire. Chapman, stop, shouted Jessie. We must tell them. The chauffeur wheeled the car in toward the curb and stopped as quickly as he could. But it was some distance past the church and the parsonage. The girls jumped out and ran back. They saw Dr. Stanley come out onto the porch from his study. He was in his house gown and wore a little black cap to cover his bald spot. He was a little on one side and gave the good clergyman a decidingly rakish appearance. Come in here, children, hurry, it is going to rain. He called in his full and mellow voice. Oh, doctor, doctor, Jessie gasped. The fire, the fire. Why, you are not wet. Here come the first drops. You don't need a fire. Nor you don't need one, doctor. And Amy began to laugh. But you've got one just the same. In the kitchen stove, is this a joke? Asked the smiling minister as the two friends came up under the porch roof, just as the first big drops came thudding down. Upstairs, the radio, declared the earnest Jessie. Don't you know it's a fire? The radio, a fire? The lightning struck it, didn't you feel and hear it? The boys must have left the switch to the receiver open and the lightning came right in. Come on broke in Amy, who knew the way about the parsonage as well as she did about her own house. We saw the smoke pouring out of the window. And she darted in and started up the front stairway. Why, why, gasped the good doctor. I can hardly believe Nell would be so careless. Oh, it isn't Nell, Jessie said, following her friend. It is the boys. But she always knows what the boys are up to, and Sally, too declared the minister, confident of his capable daughter's oversight of the family. The girls raced up the two flights. They smelled the smoke strongly as they mounted the second stairway. Then they heard voices. They've got it right in the old lumber room, Jess, panted Amy. Why don't they give the alarm? Trying to put it out themselves, we ought to have brought buckets. There is no water on this floor. Amy banged open the door of the big room in which they knew, by the arrangement of the outside wires, Bob and Fred must have set up the radio set. Amy plunged in with Jessie right behind her. The room was unpleasantly filled with smoke. Why don't you put it out? shrieked Amy and then began to cough. Hello, Bob Stanley exclaimed out of the smother. We want to put it in, not out. Hello, Jess, you here too? The fire, the smoke, gasped Jessie. Shucks, said Fred, who was down on his knees poking at something. We can't have the windows open, for the rain is beating this way. 
We've got to solder this thing. Did you have trouble with yours, Jess? Sweetness and daylight, groaned a voice behind them. Dr. Stanley stood in the doorway. He was a heavy man and mounting the stairs at such a pace tried his temper as well as his wind. Is this what started you girls off at such a tearing pace? Why, the boys borrowed that soldering outfit from the plumber. It's all right. I am so sorry we bothered you, said Jessie. But Amy had begun to laugh and could say nothing, only waved her hands weakly and looked at the clergyman, whose cap was much more over his ear than before. Right in the middle of Sunday's sermon, young lady, said the minister with apparent sternness. If that sermon is a failure, Amy and Jessie, I shall call on one of you girls, perhaps both of you, to step up into the pulpit and take my place. Remember that now. And he marched away in displeasure. But they heard him singing Onward Christian Soldiers before he got to the bottom of the upper flight of stairs. But it certainly was a great to-do, murmured Jessie as she tried to see what the boys were doing. She was able to advise them after a minute, but Amy insisted upon opening one of the windows and so getting more of the smoke out of the long room. You boys don't even know how to make a fire in a fire pot without creating a disturbance, she said. Nell came up from the kitchen where she had been consulting the cook about the meals, and Sally came tagging after her, of course, with a cookie in one hand and a rag doll in the other. This Sally is nothing but a yawning cavity walking on hollow stilts, declared Nell, who fussed good-naturedly just as her father did. She is constantly begging from the cook between meals, and her eyes are the biggest things about her when she comes to the table. Ain't, said Sally, shaking her heads in denial. Ain't what? asked Jessie. Ain't, ain't if you please, declared the little girl, revealing the fact that her sister had tried to train her in politeness. When the girls stopped laughing and Sally had finished the cookie, Nell added, Aunt Frida came last night to dinner and we had strawberry cake. Cook makes a delicious one, and Sally could eat her weight in that. When I came to serve the dessert, Sally was watching me with her eagle eye and her mouth was watering. I spooned out an ordinary dishful and Sally whispered, Oh, sister, is that all I get? So I told her it was for Aunt Frida and she gasped, What? All that? The boys got the thing they wanted soldered, completing about this time, and Bob ran down the back way with the fire pot. The rain began to lift. As Nell cheerfully said, a patch of blue sky soon appeared in the west. Jessie and Amy walked home after seeing the Stanley boys' radio set completed. Their minds then naturally reverted to the adventures of the morning and what they had heard so mysteriously out of the ether the evening before. 
Jessie had warned her friend to say nothing to anybody about the mysterious message and the stock farm over by Haramay, or of their suspicions, until she had talked again with Mr. Norwood. Mumsy came home that afternoon from Aunt Anne's, but Mr. Norwood did not appear. The court was sitting, and he had several cases which needed his entire attention. He often remained away from home several days in succession at such times. And one of the most important cases is that one he told us about, Mumsy explained. He is greatly worried about that. If he cannot find that girl who lived with Mrs. Poole... Oh, Mumsy, explained Jessie. Let us find Daddy and tell him about what Amy and I heard over the radio. I believe we learned something about Bertha Blair, only we could not find her this morning. She proceeded to explain the adventure, which included the automobile trip to Hermay and the Gandhi Farm. Mumsy became excited. It did not really seem to her to be so, but she agreed that Daddy Norwood ought to hear about it. When they tried to get him on the long-distance telephone, however, the court had closed for the day, and so had the Norwood Law Office. He was not at his club, and Mumsy did not know at which hotel he was to spend the night. There really seemed to be nothing more Jessie could do about the lost witness. And yet she feared that this delay in getting her father's attention would be irreparable. Sleep tight. <laughs>